O Sabbath rest by Galilee, O calm of hills above, where Jesus knelt to share with thee the silence of eternity, interpreted by love. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. For over 20 years, HGTV has aired a show called House Hunters, in which prospective homebuyers visit and choose among three houses. There have been something like 1,800 episodes, <laughs> each of which is comfortably formulaic. There are almost always two people looking at houses, spouses, business partners, best friends, there's almost always some kind of controversy between the two house hunters. One prefers mid-century modern houses, the other likes Tudors. <laughs> and then there's always at the end of the episode a where are they now segment in which they have a party in the kitchen of the new house to which the realtor is invariably invited. <laughs> house hunters has the easy predictability of a police procedural. You don't have to pay too much attention to understand the gist of what's going on. It's nice background noise. Moreover, it lets viewers feel like they have influence. When we shout, house number two, at the television, we feel like we are helping this couple resolve whatever differences they have. But here's the thing, and I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who don't know this already. It's all fake. <laughs> Just about everything on House Hunters is staged. The prospective homebuyers, they are in the market for a house, but they've chosen their house and are usually well on their way to closing by the time the cameras start rolling. The other options are houses that happen to be on the market and are never under serious consideration. Even the conflict between the two house hunters is usually fabricated. The home buyers are encouraged to play up their disagreements or even invent them for the sake of television drama. And once you know this secret about house hunters, you watch the show in a very different way. For instance, you see pieces of furniture in the Where Are They Now segment that were in the house when it supposedly belonged to somebody else. You notice people professing their love for a certain style in such a way that it's clear that a producer had just told them to profess their love for that certain style. But what I think is really interesting is that even though the disagreements are concocted for the entertainment of the television audience, the ill will, that can feel very real Remember, these aren't professional or even aspiring actors. These are ordinary people who thought it might be fun to be on television, and yet they are either very good at pretending to be angry or they are genuinely upset about imaginary arguments. Now, this phenomenon is not unique to programs like House Hunters, after all, the easiest way to garner attention in our media environment is by stoking conflict. 
Social media companies in particular thrive on creating that schoolyard atmosphere in which users are constantly on the lookout for opportunities to gather in a virtual mob chanting, fight, fight, fight. The remarkable thing to me is that we relish this conflict even when we have no investment in what is being fought about. Arbitrary or imagined differences between people can become the source of very real resentment or even outright hostility. Indeed, psychologists tell us that all it takes is for us to be told that we are on a particular side for us to bear ill will toward members of the opposing side. One could probably go further and say that all it takes for us to pick a side is to be told that there are two sides to choose from. We are drawn to conflict because we believe that is the way the world is organized. That is the way it has to be. And one could argue that our ancestors in the faith saw the world in a similar way. For those who were children of Israel, the world was divided between Gentile and Jew, between Israel and the nations, between those who were far off from God's promises and those who are near. And no one fell outside of this distinction. It wasn't as though there were Jews and there were Gentiles and then there was a group of people yet to be defined. If you were a Jew, you were not a Gentile. And if you were a Gentile, you were most certainly not a Jew. For the people of Israel, there was a clear, bright line that divided the world. A barrier between those whose ancestors had made covenants with God and those who had not. And this worldview was reinforced by the fact that the Jewish community, by custom and rule, kept to itself. Jews kept a different calendar. The temple in Jerusalem was designed in such a way that Gentiles were cordoned off from other worshipers. Devout Jews avoided eating with Gentiles. All of these practices served to maintain the separation between those two groups and probably to nurture some hostility among them as well. The existence of the church challenged, or at least complicated, this way of experiencing the world. Because even though the church was, was a movement that began within Judaism, it wasn't long before Gentiles were drawn to the gospel. It's hard to say what exactly attracted Gentiles to the church. Maybe it was the commitment to human dignity. Maybe it was the promise of redemption and renewal, or maybe it was simply the movement of the Holy Spirit. Whatever the reason, the presence of Gentiles in what had been a movement within Judaism, well, this created a problem. Because these were people who intentionally avoided one another. They took steps to make sure they did not eat, relax, or worship together. They weren't supposed to get along 
because they were on two different teams. And yet, now they are part of a community that worships and shares table fellowship together on a regular basis. How are they supposed to make this work? Especially given that conflict and indeed violence can be at the very heart of the human experience. Now you'd think that the obvious way to resolve this conflict is to create uniformity, to insist that everyone in the community behave in a certain way, and importantly, to remove those who do not toe the line, to create a community that is pure. Now there's a certain worldly logic to this approach, but in reality, it just displaces the conflict. In the first place, you're never going to get everybody to toe the line. <laughs> and in the second place, even if you were able to, instead of a conflict between Jew and Gentile within the community, there's now a conflict between those inside the church and those outside. The likelihood of resentment and hostility remains. For this reason, the writer of Ephesians argues that the cross of Jesus Christ has abolished not the differences between these two groups, Jew and Gentile, but that the cross has abolished the hostility. He is our peace, we read, because in the flesh of Jesus Christ, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Christ put this hostility to death through his own death on the cross, creating one new humanity, one in which our differences are no longer a cause for division. Jesus does not resolve disagreements at the cross. He does not create a new group identity for Jews and Gentiles, one that can be set against another group. Rather, by submitting to and then overcoming the violence of the cross, Jesus made it clear that violence accomplishes nothing. In his death and resurrection, Jesus reveals that bearing ill will to those with whom we disagree is unproductive and ultimately self-defeating. Of course, <laughs> knowing that violence and anger are unproductive, well, that doesn't mean that human beings are any less likely to act violently or to be angry with one another. But what it does mean is that the only way to move forward with those who see the world differently than us is to try and stay in relationship with them. Too often we try to expel or even destroy 
those who have different experiences of the world, assuming that we can create a community that is pure. The church has sinned in this way at various points in her history, as we have seen with the discovery of the mass graves at church-run indigenous residential schools. These horrific discoveries are tied to the church's complicity with the forces of colonialism, yes, but they are also rooted in that false and deeply human notion that maintaining peace requires the erasure of difference. The writer of Ephesians, the gospel, reveals that the only way forward is for us to keep as many people at the table, as many people at that table, as we possibly can. And I think one way to do this, one that I've been trying to practice, is to adopt this refrain. I may not understand all of you, but I do love all of you. I may not understand all of you, but I love all of you. As our hymn had it, we're called to interpret all of our actions by love. And this doesn't resolve our differences, but it allows us to stay in relationship. And it allows us to be the church that we are called to be.